In this lesson, we are going to look at what McKendrick calls the badge of enforceability. Now, in the previous lesson, as in agreement, I spoke about a trifecta, or three main elements in order to be established for a valid commercial contract to be in place, which was offer, acceptance, and now, as we will be speaking in this lesson, consideration. With these three elements in place, it is noted that a valid commercial contract can be found. However, there are certain other requirements which we will be discussing towards uh, the following lessons, such as formative requirements, terms, as well as misrepresentation, which all play a key role in determining if a contract is valid and if breaches occur, who is liable and who has to have the benefit and not the detriment. But for the purposes of a contractual agreement to be in place, there must be an offer by one party which is unconditionally accepted by another and this whole endeavor needs to be supported by consideration. So what is consideration? There is a misnomer among many students, including myself when I started the LLB, that consideration is money. It can be, but it need not be at all the time. What do I mean by this? In essence, the very first notion that a person might get when you consider consideration is that it needs to be some form of tangible compensation from one party to another for services or goods rendered. Now, if we take a very simple example as a storefront, customer or A goes and purchases a loaf of bread and pays the cashier B a certain amount, let's say $1 for that particular bread. Now, in this context, this is a very simple example of a contract being in place. The offer, of course, being given by A, in this case, the customer, accepted by the cashier in return for payment of $1. The trifecta of offer, acceptance and consideration is evident in that particular scenario, in that particular situation. But what we need to realize is it need not always be about money. For instance, commercial contracts does not rely on gratuitous promises or bare promises without supporting consideration. But a promise of consideration is also evident and accepted. What I mean by this is, in the context of the storefront sale that I mentioned earlier, both the offer and acceptance along with the consideration passed simultaneously. This is what is called an executed contract. However, in the same light, you have what are called executionary contracts, where services are rendered and following the services, a particular payment or some sort of compensation is done. But the contract actually begins when the work begins, when the services are rendered. And at that point, one party merely promises a certain amount to the other, which he would get when the services or the goods are rendered. Therefore, in commercial contracts, consideration might be rendered then and there, as well as promised to be rendered at a certain given point of time in the future. Now with this, we can have a look at one of the very first features and characteristics of consideration. Consideration need only be sufficient and not adequate. Have a look at Thomas and & Thomas and Chappelle and & Nestle in the case summaries. These two cases will illustrate the difference between what we consider as consideration in our very fundamental perspective as well as what it can be. The sufficiency requirement stipulates that when we are talking about consideration, monetary or otherwise, contract law does not care about whether you are getting a good or bad bargain. 
So the idea is there needs to be sufficient consideration, but it need not be adequate. Whether you are going to get worse of a detriment than you would in another case is not the concern here. Have a look at Nestle and you'll understand that the material question in the case itself pointed towards a confectionery wrapper as being sufficient consideration. Now I mentioned earlier that consideration was based on the agreement at the outset of the contract itself. As in, when the contract is entered into, all the stipulated characteristics and features of that contract has to be laid out. For instance, in the case of the display example that I mentioned at the outset about the bread being bought for $1, the customer is aware that it is $1 and at the point of sale, $1 is exchanged in place for the bread. Now why I mention this is a very notable area in consideration is past consideration and its applicability. Now in general, past consideration is not considered as good consideration. Now in Ray McArdle, a woman carried out work on a household which was jointly owned by several parties and subsequent to the work having been completed, she was promised by other members of the family that payment would be made. Unfortunately, payment was not made and she was not able to sustain a claim in court primarily because the consideration component or the fact that she would be paid was only communicated after the contract had initiated and for that matter after it was concluded as well. However, much like many other aspects of contract law and law as a whole, there are several exceptions to this rule. There are requests made by the promisor himself. Now, for instance, in Ray McArdle, the promise was made by the other members of the family. In that same light, Wherever there are requests made by the promisor, which goes above and beyond, there is an understanding that consideration might be part and parcel of this contract. It really depends on the promisor itself because of a fundamental premise in consideration and contract law, which is that consideration passes from the promisee. Now, it's very important to keep this in mind because it was very simple for me as a student to understand consideration when I grasped the concept that consideration must move from the promisee. So, for instance, wherever in general context, much like in past consideration, we stipulate that it's not good consideration and it, you cannot sustain a claim. If the request goes above and beyond the contractual agreement itself, and has been done so, as in the request itself has been done so by the promisor, then more often than not, there might be a need to sustain that with consideration. And the promisee has the ability to enforce that as well. Now this revolves around a second component of it as well, as in there must be consensus ad item between the parties or an understanding that consideration is needed for this type of work. Thirdly, there might be instances where similar type of work was compensated for and thus the promisee or in this case the person who's undertaking the work relied upon payment to be made towards the latter part of the contractual agreement and did not stipulate it at the start of it. Another element we must consider in relation to consideration is whether part payment can absolve a promisor of his entire obligation in relation to the consideration or compensation which is required in a particular contract. Now if we are to go by Folks and Beer which is a seminal judgment 
in relation to part payment, the answer would be no, and that part payment uh, is not applicable insofar as once a payment has been made partially, the promisee is still capable of coming back and requesting for the remainder later on as well. Have specific emphasis on both Folks and Beer as well as Pinnell's case, which was the preceding judgment on the matter. Both are available in great detail in the case summaries. A very interesting area in relation to consideration is where existing obligations conflict with fresh consideration. Now, there are several cases in relation to existing obligation that we will look at and are available in the case summaries in, in quite detail, actually. One of which is Glassbrook Brothers and Glamorgan County Council, Warden Byham, Williams and Rofe Brothers, and Stilk and Merrick. Now, the latter two, Williams and Rofe Brothers, as well as Stilk and Merrick, are the seminal two cases in relation to uh, existing obligation. In Stilk, what was stated by court was that where the parties were obligated to complete a particular contractual arrangement, regardless of the consequences, fresh consideration will not absolve uh, them of completing that duty. Now in Stilk, a sea captain was made helpless when two of the seamen abandoned the ship and in order to get ashore safely, the captain promised the remainder of the seamen an additional amount, an additional uh, compensation or consideration if they were to get to shore safely. Once they got on shore, the captain refused to pay and that's how this case came about. What was notable in this regard was that it was an existing obligation on the part of the seamen to, regardless of the abandonment of two of the seamen, to complete the voyage safely. This was the contractual arrangement. However, it can be argued that in the event the ship was left with only a handful of seamen, only barely adequate to maintain a ship and to take it to safety, and the captain promised the seamen uh, an additional compensation or consideration to take them safely, in that regard there might be fresh consideration applicable purely due to the fact that the seamen now have taken on a much tougher, much more dangerous endeavor than that which they began with. Now, contrary to this, an extension to Stilk and Mirick, which is still good law, was found in Williams and Rofi brothers. Now, the operative word that court emphasized in relation to a new promise in relation to an existing obligation was practical benefit. Now, I'm not going to go into detail in relation to Williams since it's uh, elucidated quite vividly in the case summaries, which is a PDF which can be downloaded along with this course. But suffice to say, what Williams suggested was where the new requirement or where the change in the terms of the contract made it so that the promisor was getting a practical benefit more often than not in relation to time or cost, then it can be considered as a new promise which has to be supported by fresh consideration, in which case at the end or at the successful completion of this contractual arrangement, the promisor is bound to that additional consideration or compensation that was promised to the promisee. Finally, we're going to look at a very controversial area of consideration, the fact which was championed by Lord Denning himself, which is promissory estoppel. Now, the seminal case in this regard is High Trees, which is the basis upon which Lord Denning actually elucidated 
this controversial area. Very simply, promissory estoppel can only be established when three main components are evident in a contractual arrangement. Firstly, there must be a clear and unambiguous statement by the promisor that his or her legal rights will not be enforced. Secondly, the promisee must have relied upon this representation by the promisor. And thirdly, it must be inequitable for that promisor to go back on his word. Now, out of context, this might seem confusing, but to put it in uh, perspective, the example that can be brought about is where a promisor, let's say A in this instance, has promised to suspend or to halt for a period of time a certain amount of consideration or a certain action. And in reliance of that, the promisee has gone about to get into a worse position or detriment on his regard. It will be inequitable for the promisor to go back on his word at a point of time where the promisee is at a weaker position. Have a look at the case summaries where uh, the case of Central London Property Trust and High Trees House Limited uh, has been elucidated and it explains the concept of promissory estoppel in great detail. But the idea of promissory estoppel is to provide relief for a promisee who is now at a position which is worse than he was before the contract was actually entered into. This has been utilized heavily by Lord Denning in order to facilitate justice in relation to contractual arrangements where promisors have gone above and beyond their purview in order to enforce a contract or in certain instances to benefit themselves or to put them in a higher position than they were before. It is of course an equitable remedy, the scope of which is in clear doubt even to this day. But what is notable in relation to promissory estoppel, as was held in Combe and Combe, it must ostensibly be used as a shield and not a sword. What is meant by that is it is merely a defense by the promisee himself and cannot be enforced by a promisor in order to get leverage over another party. The third and final element of the trifecta that I mentioned earlier, as well as in the lesson before, is consideration. It's notable that many students find the concepts in consideration quite daunting and at the outset it leads students to feel that the subject matter itself, that contract law itself, is complicated. But in fact, consideration is merely a component in which a checklist can be found. Once you define the characteristics and features of any particular case, be it in a problem question or within the case law itself, precedent itself, you understand that what court surmises as consideration is different from case to case and more often than not is quite simple and straightforward. It is merely to put oneself in the position of either the promisor or the promisee and to see whether he or she has been compensated sufficiently. Cases such as Nestle and Thomas, which illustrate the variety of consideration which has been upheld by court, as well as the interesting components of promissory estoppel, which has been invoked by justices such as Lord Denning, clearly illustrate how 
consideration has come quite a long way since Pinel's case and the more contemporary and somewhat tongue-twisting Pow On and Love You Long. All of these cases and more are available in your case summaries and I urge you to look over them before you move on to the next lesson which is formative requirements. <laughs>